It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. There are those moments in history where something major happens, and we always remember where we were at the precise moment when something dramatic stops us dead in our tracks and captures our attention. For my parents, it was JFK's assassination. For me, it was the Challenger explosion. For all of us, 19 years ago, it was September 11th, 2001. I remember that day so well. I arrived at the traffic center while it was still dark outside. As we were about to begin our radio and television traffic reports, we were all startled by the news out of New York, a possible plane into one of the towers. I knew in my gut that this was bad. We sat glued to the monitors in the newsroom, and like so many people around the world, we witnessed the senseless murders of so many when that second plane struck the other tower. The scream from one of my reporters still haunts me today. Then there were two more planes down and more lives lost. In total that day, 2,977 people lost their lives and over 25,000 were injured, with many more health-related issues and deaths being reported through the years from those who survived the initial attacks and those who worked down at Ground Zero during the rescue and recovery phase. 9-11 is the single deadliest terror attack in human history and the single deadliest incident for firefighters and law enforcement officers. So many families were devastated that day. Four sets of brothers, three sets of cousins, and a father and son all died while they tried to selflessly save the lives of others at the towers. Now I'm going to warn you, what I'm about to say isn't pretty, but it needs to be understood what so many families endured. Just think about this for a moment. Many of the families didn't get to bury a body. Many others got parts of their loved ones to bury. And here's the harsh reality of that. Many families continued to receive body parts for many years after 2001, once the medical examiner's office was able to confirm that it was part of their loved one. Several families chose to bring their loved one's coffins back up in order to rebury them when they received additional body parts. You know, I can't even fathom having that happen in my life. And I've seen a lot of death. I didn't know anyone that died that day in 2001, but I do now, having connected with the spirits of five people who perished in the North Tower, one of them being a firefighter. Last September, I went back to New York in order to deliver a message to his coworkers to give them some peace, knowing that he didn't suffer. I didn't personally know anyone that survived that day in 2001 or who worked in the aftermath, but I do now. And I'm very honored to have two of them in studio with me today. My co-hosts were both there in New York on that day. Bob Jenkins proudly served his country as a Marine 
He found himself in the North Tower that fateful day for a business meeting. He managed to make it out and will share his harrowing story of what he saw, felt, and went through in making his escape. He continues to share his story so that we never forget what happened that day and to show us just how precious life is. Growing up in New York City and coming from a family of police officers, Larry Carrito spent over two decades working for the New York Police Department and retired as a detective in 2015. He spent countless days working in the wreckage down at Ground Zero. He is here to share what he saw and experienced from not only a human perspective, but from the heart of a first responder. Guys, it is my pleasure to have you both in studio today. Welcome. Hey, thank Robin. You. Thanks for having us. And before we even start this thing off, I have to tell both of you, thank you for your service to our country and to humanity. Everything that you have done and everything you continue to do. You're welcome. Wow. So uh, <laughs> it is quite overwhelming to talk about this subject sometimes. Yeah. And I know, Bob, you and I have um, met on several occasions and had these discussions about 9-11. And I think it's a miracle that you're here with me today. I think there's a reason. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people have heard your story, but a lot of people haven't. Take us back to why you were in New York back then in September 2001. I worked for a company, a video teleconferencing company, <clears throat> excuse me, and we were, uh, we were pre going to present a, uh, a desktop video uh, solution to Lehman Brothers and so the day before uh, today, on uh, September 10th, I was in New York with uh, my VP of sales, David Moss, and my uh, sales engineer, Chris Platt. Chris was in from Chicago. David lived in New Jersey, and I was down from Boston. And uh, we went into the New York Stock Exchange the day before um, to call on them and present the uh, uh, video solutions to them and talk to them about it as well. And it was a brutal, nasty, hot, humid day. And come the end of the day, David uh, took off and went back to New Jersey, go home with his wife and kids. And Chris and I were heading uptown. We went up to the uh, Marriott Marquis on 49th Street, checked in the hotel, and then Chris and I went out for sushi and had a couple of beers that night. Got up the next morning, and September 11th was a... I'm looking at Larry. It was a beautiful, crisp, clear, yeah. dry day. Perfect. Perfect day. I mean, one of those days where you just feel it's great to be alive. It was cool and dry and crisp and just beautiful. And Chris and I jumped in a cab, and we went down the FDR drive, and we pulled up in front of the World Trade Center, took our bags out. I think Chris was going back to Chicago. I was supposed to go to Montreal that night. And we took our bags out of the car and we walked into the World Trade Center and we stood there and we waited. We were drinking coffee and we were waiting for David to come in from New Jersey. And we had a uh, consultant, Arthur Cass, who was going to meet us. And so Chris and I stood there drinking coffee, waiting for these guys to show up. And I grew up in and around New York. You know, my dad worked in New York for 35 years. I'm no stranger to New York City. I lived in New York after I got out of the Marine Corps. I, 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 I know New York. But as Chris and I stood drinking coffee, watching people come into the World Trade Center, 
it was like time-lapse photography. You'd see these lines of people out in front of the elevator banks, and then they'd go away, and then they'd grow, and then they'd go away. At one point, I looked over at Chris, and I was like, where are they all going? Like, how big is the building? You know, just kidding around, but, you know, like, where are all these people going? And then you'd see people come in from the um, – Oh, what was the subway called? The, uh, the, oh, the path? Downstairs? The path. Yeah. Yeah, we'd see people come up from the path, and you'd see these just, just, it was like marching ants. There were just so many people, and people, just tons and tons of people. So at one point, David showed up, and Arthur showed up, and we had to go over and have our pictures taken, and then they embossed there, they printed it onto a little uh, credit card, you know. Bob Jenkins, WTC, 9-11, Lehman Brothers. And I still have that card to this day. So that's the 40th floor, right? We went to the 40th, and then we had we met our host from Lehman Brothers, and they had a, a, a conference room for us down on the 39th. So when we met all them and everybody got together, we walked down a flight of stairs and got to the 39th floor, went out or went into the 39th floor, and then we walked into a small conference room. Um, and you do what everybody does. We were in there, you know, how are you? How are your summer? How are the kids? How's this? We knew all these people. And Lehman had given us a list of things that they demanded. And if we could come up with and supply them with what they wanted, they were going to do a beta between New York, London, and Tokyo with this desktop video conferencing solution that we had. And if things worked out the way they wanted to, they were going to deploy this worldwide. And it was pretty... It was pretty technical back in the day, and we had surpassed what they wanted us to do. So we were confident. We knew that what we were going to give them was what they asked for and more. And so you, know, you do what you all do. You know, you, you're sitting around the table. How are you? How's the summer? How are the kids? How's this? And so we get all that down, and it was my meeting. So I looked at everyone. And I said, okay, the purpose of the meeting is we are here to discuss. And the word discuss got about eight inches out of my mouth. When ba-boom, there was an insanely loud explosion, and that's when the world basically just stopped. And uh, what happened was the explosion, everybody froze, and then you could feel the percussion come down through the building. So the building actually shook. The building, yeah, and well, yes, yes and yes. What happens is... Whenever you've seen any of these explosions on television, the nightly news or whatever, you see, you see an explosion and you see the light flash, but then you see um, the sound, the energy flat, uh, blast follow it because it's you know, obviously slower than light. But you, that's the energy. That's the explosion. And then you'll see all the wind and the gust, what have you, follow it. And that's, that's the, the energy explosion. So we felt that literally come down through the building. And I was a combat engineer in the Marine Corps. And I, I did a lot with explosives. I, I played around with a lot of high explosives. And so I know what they look like. I know what they sound like. I know what they smell like. I know what they feel like. And when I heard it, that's when everyone in the room froze. Now, I felt that percussion come down. And I went, oh, shh, you know what? Um, Robin told us we can't swear. No, you can. Hmm. Oh, you can. I said, I said, I said <laughs> oh, shoot. It's a podcast. I said, oh, shoot. Okay. That's not what you really said. I said, oh, shit. Exactly. So um, that's when things clicked in with me that this was a, an explosion. 
then everything froze. Nothing happened. But then a moment later, the building literally started to just convulse. I mean, the building just started to teeter back and forth. And if you look at your, you know, your forearm, we were down on 39, and the building was doing this. I can't imagine mm. what the people up in top, you know, it's like, it's like mm. if you had a whip, you know, if you're down at the bottom of the whip, you're not moving around too much, but the top, you're getting swung around incredibly. So the building started to convulse, and that's where people in the room started to panic. And I watched them, and they got up and they were just booking. I took... Uh, one of the, well, one of the, one of the courses something I learned in the Marine Corps was we took a course on survival and one of the things we learned during that course was how not to panic when you feel the adrenaline kick in and you feel all the shit ready to hit the fan and you're ready to go into that mode you've got to stop it you have to just it's a mental thing you you've got to overcome panic because panic is what kills people and I watched these guys panicking and starting to run and I thought Bob. You can't do that. You're in a tall building in Manhattan. Someone yelled earthquake, and I went, there's no earthquakes in Manhattan. Never, usually. And earthquakes don't explode, and earthquakes don't do this. So I'm going through all the things in my head. I'm sitting there. They all got up and ran out, and I said, you need to stay here and stay really cool because whatever this is, it's, it's not natural. And, I, of course, you didn't know what was going on. So, anyway, I'm sitting there for a moment, and I'm like, you got to be cool. You've got to stay cool. And so the first thing I think is, what is anybody teaching an earthquake? You get under the door jams. And I'm, you know, I'm like thinking, that's ridiculous. You know, it's, I'm on the 39th floor of a tall building. The door jams not going to do anything. So I'm thinking, okay, stairs. And then in my mind's eye, I'm picturing this, the, build, the, the way the building was rocking, and I'm thinking – if the, and I understand construction, I'm thinking if if the building's rocking like this and those stairs, the bolts that hold the stairs together came loose, you're going to have stairways that are just going to collapse. So I'm like, I don't want to be in a stairway either. So I sat there for a moment and eventually I got up and I tried to walk and, pe- and I say to people, I walked. I didn't walk because you couldn't walk. It was like walking on jello. Um, I managed to, I'll use the word walk. I managed to get from where I was in that conference room out into the main part of the offices and computers were falling off tables, chairs were moving around, desk drawers were opening. I mean, it was complete mayhem in the, in the main part of this building here. And again, keep, keep in mind, I'm on 39. I'm way down here. The people up top had to be 10 times worse than what I was going through. And I managed to get over to the windows and when I got to the windows, I looked out the windows, and down to my left, I was looking at the Statue of Liberty. I was looking at the Hudson River. I was looking at the Palisades Cliffs. Um, and then I looked up, and there was a cobalt blue sky, absolutely beautiful, beautiful cobalt blue sky. And then off to my left, up top, I saw a paper coming down, and it was like snowflakes. It was like ticker tape. And it was beautiful, the white against the cobalt blue. And I looked down and I saw the piers, I saw the West Side Drive, and I looked at all of it. And at one point, I dug my hands deep into my pockets and I stood there and I said out loud, I looked around and I then just said, Bob, so this is where I die. Because I knew for sure that the building was going to topple over. I knew for sure it was going to topple over. 
And I just thought, so this is where I die. We're all going to go. I mean, it's inevitable. There's nobody going to live forever. and Nobody knows when they're going to go. And I know you're a man, but I know men feel things too. What kind of emotions were you going through at this point? I know you're trying to remain calm, but you know that this is where you're going to die at this point. What are you feeling? It, 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 I, I don't know how to tell you. It was really peaceful. I was just going to say it was like a strange peacefulness. Yeah. That's how I would imagine it. I knew there was nothing I could do. I knew I couldn't run. I knew I couldn't jump. I knew there was absolutely nothing to do, nowhere to go, and the building was going to topple over, and I was like, okay, so this is where I die. Wow. And I stood there waiting for the building to go over, and a moment later, the building stopped shaking, and it, you, there was an audible clunk. I could hear it when it stopped shaking, it, it, when it so, finally settled, there was a clunk. And I heard that. And then I heard a woman somewhere in the office, somewhere behind me, I heard a woman yell, there's been an explosion in the mechanical room on the 42nd floor. So that was like right above you. That was right above mm-hmm. me. And I'll let the conspiracy theorists run with that one. But I thought, okay, so this is good. It's three stories above me. Um, I'm going to get out of here and the building to stop shaking. So I had, I had literally a notebook and I don't mean an iPad. I mean, I had a paper <laughs> notebook in my hand with a pen, my overnight bag, my uh, laptop computer were still in the conference room. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go on the stairs. I'll walk down the flight of stairs and I'm going to get out of here. And, uh, I walked over the stairs and I opened the door and as I opened the door, I literally did a double take. I looked in and it was so full of people. I thought, how the hell, where'd all they, where'd they all come from so quickly? And um, I closed the door and I opened it again and I walked into this crowd of people. And it was, uh, you know, people always say to me, you know, it's, 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 you know, was it crazy? Was it, you know, was, was it, was it mayhem? You know, were people screaming and yelling and, at, you know, just tromping all over themselves? Quiet, right? And I said, no. I said, yeah. It was quiet. And New Yorkers. New Yorkers. That's exactly right. You guys got this down, right? Mm. Tough. They were so well behaved. And as we kept walking down the stairs, um, what happened was the building turned into a big chimney. And so all the smoke was recirculating through and coming up through the stairwell. And so at one point, um, you really couldn't see well and you couldn't breathe. And now I'm thinking as I'm walking down the stairs... Uh, we're going to die of asphyxiation in here. And I'm going, you know, this sucks. So every time I got down to one of the landings, I'm reaching over and I'm grabbing the door handle to try and get back into the building. But you can't because they're all locked for security purposes. So you're stuck in the stairway. Know where you're going to go. And when we got down to the 30th floor, keep in mind, I was on 39. We climbed down 39, uh, thir- nine flights of stairs. And as we got to 30 and I hit the landing, I started to pivot. I heard something going on on the stairway coming up, and I looked over the handrail, and I looked down. I saw these two guys running up against all this traffic. And my first thought was a couple of really high-powered, you know, brokers from Goldman Sachs. And these are the kind of guys that, you know, they trade millions of dollars a day. Of course, I had no idea an airplane hit the building. So I'm looking at these two guys running up the stairs, and I'm thinking these are a couple high-powered Goldman Sachs guys going back to their desks to trade. And in the meantime, everybody else is cleaning out of the building. So as I got down to the 30th floor, 
and I got down to that platform, and I started to pivot to turn to go down the next flight of stairs, the first guy came up, and we bumped shoulders. And I mean we bumped shoulders. And on his left breast pocket, uh, he had a suit and a tie, white shirt, and on his left breast pocket, there was a badge that said, Chief, New York City Fire Department. The guy directly behind him, his badge said, Lieutenant, New York City Fire Department. So think about it. These guys got from somewhere in Manhattan mm-hmm. into the building, climbed 30 flights of stairs by the time I went down nine flights of stairs. Wow. Against a tide. Against the tide. People. Yeah. Exactly right. So they both perished that day. Um, and then as we kept walking down, uh, we got to one spot where uh, as I turned and I was pivoting down the stairs, um, there was a bottle that, cause there was a man down on the landing in a wheelchair. And so the other thing too, just adding to this, if any one of you, anybody listening to this were to go into any commercial building right now, walk down a flight of stairs, it'll take you a couple seconds, maybe five seconds to walk down a flight of stairs. It took me. About 40 minutes to get out, 39 flights of stairs to do the math. It was about a minute per flight. That's a long time. That's a long, long time to walk down. Um, So what happened was at one point I saw this guy sitting in a wheelchair directly in front of me down on the platform. And the first step down, you know, and then I'm next step. And I'm looking. I'm thinking, well, maybe I can pick this guy up and put him on my back and carry him. And I'm like, Bob, you're not a 22-year-old Marine anymore. That's not going to happen. Yeah, because your credo is don't leave anybody behind, right? Exactly. And I'm looking at him, and, the, and then I get down. I think, well, maybe we get a couple guys, you know, stairs full of people. Put a couple people on either side. We'll pick them up. We'll carry them down. No, it's not going to work. Get to the next step. Maybe we'll put two in front, two in this. And I said, no, it's not going to work. So then I get right to him, and I'm thinking, what am I even worried about this for? This is what the New York City Fire Department's trained to do. They're going to get him out of here. This isn't my job. Now, not in a bad way. And again, keep in mind, I had no idea an airplane hit the building. I had no idea that there was any sense of trouble. So would you think most people around you didn't even know what was going on either? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think they did. Nobody was talking about it. And so I got to him. And what happened was it created a bottleneck. And what Larry was saying a second ago People people can give New Yorkers a bad rap all they like, but I've lived in New York. Larry's from New York, and you know New Yorkers really because because there's so many people in the city. You learn to put your defenses up, and there's a few crazy people that have you. But overall, New Yorkers are really, really, really good people. And what happened was, as we got down to him, it created a bottleneck, and so that slowed the stairs down even more. And what you were hearing is people searing, hearing uh, just around the corner that couldn't quite see, but in that sub-panic in their voice, it'd be like, well, what's wrong? Why are we slowing down? What's the problem? And immediately somebody would say, hey, there's a man in a wheelchair down here. There's a little bit of a bottleneck. And then you'd, you'd hear, you know, show respect. And then you'd hear that start to reverberate back up through the stairs. And that kept everybody really calm and cool. And <clears throat> so we got around him, and then I kept walking down the stairs. And I don't remember what floor it was. It's, it's a blur, but many flights later, the same thing happened. There was a woman who had to be about five foot nothing. And I'll bet you she weighed 300 pounds. And that's a lot of weight to carry on a good day. And 
you know, being short like that and being that heavy, she's carrying that weight and you're walking downstairs. People don't understand how much weight that is and how much work that is. It's hard for your heart. It's hard for your heart. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to walk downstairs if you're that out of shape and you're, you know, you're carrying that much weight. And also being in fight or flight mode. Also. Absolutely. So here she is and she created a bottle because she'd take a step and stop. And she's like, you know, just, <sighs> and she took a step and she was, you know, as, as wide as she was tall. So it created a bottleneck. So what happened was the same thing. As we came up to her, people would be like, why are you slowing up? What's the problem? People say, there's a woman down here. She's having some problems, you know, coming down the stairs, show respect. And that was the word you kept hearing was show respect. Wow. And you'd hear that reverberate back up through the stairs as well. So we got past her. And now what started to happen was because when the plane hit where it did, it severed a bunch of water lines way up high, and water was starting to cascade down through the stairway, and it was mixed with jet fuel and smoke. And it was really ugly. I mean, it was really ugly in the stairs. And um, all I'm thinking is we're going to asphyxiate. We're going to die of asphyxiation in these stairs. Someone's going to come down at the first stair when they clean this place out, and they're going to just start pulling bodies one at a time, and they're just going to clean bodies out of here. And um, so every time I got to a landing, I'm trying the door handle. I'm trying the door handle because I want to get the hell out of the stairs. And uh, I got to one stair. I don't know where I was in the 20s maybe. And um, as as my foot came down and I got to the landing, the door opened and two guys came out. They both had white shirts, ties open, dark pants. I grabbed the handle and I walked right into their office. And all of a sudden, I'm in this office, and I got clean, fresh air. I'm blinking. I'm hyperventilating. And I'm thinking, this is beautiful. I'm going to stay in here. I'll kill an hour. Um, I got to go back upstairs and get my overnight bag and my computer anyway. I'm going to Montreal tonight. And so I'm thinking, I'll just stay in here and kill an hour uh, and go back upstairs once the fire department gets this thing taken care of. And... I thought, you know, I go over to a desk, make a phone call, do whatever I need to do, kill an hour, boom, back upstairs. And I say all the time, I'm not religious. I'm probably the most unreligious person you're ever going to meet in your life. But I am one of the more spiritual people you're ever going to meet in your life. Because I do believe, whether you call them God, her, it, whatever, whatever your beliefs are, that's your business. But I believe that a supreme being, which some people call God, Jesus Christ, put his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, come with me because I turned around in this conference room, this, this room, this level that I was on with clean, fresh air. And I walked back into the stairway. I opened the door and I looked over the railing and I looked down, not that I could see cause it was so smoky, but I looked down, I was listening and I was waiting for somebody to say, get back up, get back up. And I said to myself, Bob, you're about to make a life or death decision here. If I let go of that handle, I'm committed to these stairs. I got clean, fresh air back in there. That was the smart move. (laughs) Involuntarily, my hand just let go of the handle. Against everything that you would think you would do, my hand let go of that handle. And I thought, you're in deep shit now, pal. That's uh, self-preservation. Also, you kind of knew with your experiences. Exactly. Combat and whatnot. So I kept walking down the stairs, and I kept walking down the stairs, and I remember looking, you know, on every level there's, there's a, a, a number um, etched on the wall to tell you what floor you're on. And I remember seeing like 18, 12, 
10. And you're looking at these numbers and you're looking at all these people in front of you walking really, really slowly and you're willing them to hurry up. You're like, you know, God damn it. You know, just come on, let's go move faster, faster. And you realize they can't. So there's nowhere you can go. And I'm at, you know, we get down to 10, eight, five. And I'm like, you know, close doesn't count. You know, close doesn't count. And when I got down to the, to the, to the uh, second floor and now one, I looked and it was the mezzanine level and there was a security guard standing at the bottom of the stairs waving to us. And I thought, hot damn, I just bought a floor. I don't have to go to the lobby. I'm getting off at the mezzanine. <clears throat> so I literally got out. So again, my mind, I'm thinking 42nd floor explosion. I still had no idea jet hit the building. We didn't know the jet hit the other building. We didn't see it. We didn't hear it. We didn't feel it. So if any if anybody's ever been in the World Trade Center, uh, there's you know glass walls um, um, to walk from building to building. And as soon as I got out the mezzanine level, I looked and I realized where I was. I used to work for American Express, and I looked over and I saw the Amex Tower right next door, and I thought, all right, I know where I am. And I walked about 10 feet, and I looked to my right through the glass, and about 15 feet on the other side of the glass was the part of a, a wing to a jet and a jet engine lying on the ground smoldering. Okay, when you saw that, what was the first thought that entered your mind? What the whiskey tango foxtrot? And I thought, what the? And I lit, it was one of those things you cannot process the information. I looked at it. I saw an engine on the ground smoldering. And I'm like, I'm at the base of the World Trade Center in New York City. I'm looking at, 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 a, at a jet engine lying on the ground smoldering. You know, like, what? You just can't put the pieces together. Yeah, like this shouldn't be happening. Shouldn't be happening. I mean, you, you, you can't be happening. None of it. You can't. I mean, to this day, 20 years later, what, 19 years later, I still can't process that information. Like, you just it doesn't make sense. So now I'm walking through, and I'm realizing I'm probably in shock. I mean, you know, people go, oh, you're in shock. You know, breathing this, going through what have you, you know, your body goes into shock. It just, it's just, it's a natural mechanism your body does. So I'm walking down, and I get to the end of the hallway where I was, and I saw people running, and I'm like, why is everybody in such a hurry? This It's just not making sense to me. They'd run up, they'd run to the glass doors, they'd pull the door open, and I'd watch them look up. And then from the door to the building, to the outside, probably, if I said 30 feet, that might be close. There was nothing. And then from 30 feet on, there was a mass of humanity because all the other buildings had vacated. And all of these people were outside, but they were 30 feet away from the, the World Trade Center. So there was this line of demarcation, and it was a sea of humanity. I mean, absolutely positively, from as far left as I could look to, as far right as I could look up to, whatever the building was that was right up there, there was people, and lots of people. And I happened to see Arthur. Arthur was very tall, and he had really curly, uh, he had an afro. And I happened to pick his head out, and all of the sea of people, I happened to see his head. And I thought, oh, my God. So I put a bead on him, and I got into the crowd, and I caught up to him, and I said, where's David and Chris? And he, the first thing he said to me was, don't move. 
They're not leaving without you. Which was really powerful in itself, because had I not seen him and met up with him, and then David and Chris came back a moment later, who knows what would have happened to David and Chris. But what did happen was David and Chris came back, and we, we talked, and I said, look, guys, I was the last one out of the building. I was the last one out of that conference room. I was the last one out of the building. I don't know where anybody else is at the moment, but I can tell you they're not on that floor. They're probably out here somewhere, but they're not there. I know nobody was left up there. So we got through all that, and then we you know, kind of did a self-assessment, and then we did what everybody else did. You stood there with your mouth open. You looked up at the side of the building, that big gaping gash, and going, holy shit. And I'm looking at it from a construction background, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, how the hell are they ever going to fix that? Are they going to bring the scaffolding up from down below, or are they going to bring it from the top down? And I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the burning. I'm looking at the fire. I'm looking at all this, and I'm like, how the hell are they ever going to fix that? Is it registering with your mind at this point that it was a plane? No. Still not. Still not. Wow. Yeah, no. I had no. the same thoughts when, when, uh, when I saw on television when I got back to the precinct. And uh, I'm like, same thing. How the hell are we going to fix that? How are going to fix it? That's like the mode That's, we go into. So I heard a woman in the crowd. I heard somebody yell, oh, my God, they jumped. And I looked up. And I saw some debris. I saw paper. I saw debris falling. I said, no, I think that's just debris. And as I said the word debris, I watched a man lean forward. I can still see it. I'm looking at Robin and Larry right now. I can see this guy. And he literally stood on the edge of the building, and he just leaned forward. And I'm watching him, and I'm subconsciously, I'm reaching over my own chest, and I'm pulling. I'm like, pull the chute, pull the chute, pull the chute. I'm thinking that this is all a movie, Hollywood, something's going on. This is, you know, this is all a set, and this is a base jumper. And I'm watching this guy come down, and he's just free-falling. I can still see it perfectly. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? And he hits the ground, he just turned into a tomato. And that, needless to say, affected me. And then I watched a woman. She just stepped off the edge of the building. like She was stepping off the curb in Manhattan to, take, to catch a cab. She just stepped off. Her blouse came blowing up around her. She's coming down ass over tea kettle. Her hands are coming out to the sides, and she's coming down like this. And I'm watching this, and I go, holy shit, she just jumped off the building. And she hit the ground, and she just exploded. And at that moment, I turned around to all of these people, and I have a pretty loud voice, and I yelled really, really loudly. I said, folks, this is not live entertainment. I will not stand here and watch people commit suicide. I'm getting the hell out of here. And David looked at me, David Moss, my VP of sales, and he said, you're coming with me. We're going to New Jersey. <laughs> I laughed at him. And I looked and I said, David, I stopped taking orders when I got out of the Marine Corps. I said, you live in New Jersey. Chris is in Chicago. I'm in Boston. I got a sister in Greenwich, Connecticut. I said, if I have to, I can walk to Connecticut. It's, you know, I mean, it's 30 miles, but I can walk to Connecticut. Um, so I knew Manhattan and I knew what to do and, you know, if I knew how to get there, I'd, I'd make it work. And so Arthur and I started heading uptown and David and Chris left, which as I said earlier, is really powerful because had they not seen me, who knows if they would have stuck around there and for how long, Mm. you know, so we'll never know the answer, but they left and they went down to the docks and, and tried to get one of the ferries to get them out of Manhattan and over to New Jersey. So 
you know, we'll never know. But thank God that we all met where there when we did <clears throat> and got out of there. Um, yeah. Arthur and I then, you know, we started walking uptown and uh and you know, thank God we got out of there when we did because Tower Two came down shortly thereafter. And uh, you know, we got we didn't get blasted, but we got some of the dust, not a lot, not like you know, the stuff Larry was involved with. But we got some of the blast, we got some of the dust, and we had no idea what it was. We didn't know what was causing it. We had no idea. Um, and we got uptown, and that's a whole whole nother story with, with, with what happened well, later on. Once you got to your place of safety, how long was it before you realized what actually happened? We walked, we walked up... Uh, the West Side Drive, and Arthur's wife worked. Her office was up by 42nd, up by the um, uh, Empire State Building. And we walked up there, and that <laughs> bizarre things happened on the way up there. That's, you write a book about what happened on the way up there. You still need to do that, by the way. I know, I know, I know. Um, but we, we, I'll leave some of this out. And... Um, so we got up that we, we, we finally got to where his wife worked. And Arthur's looking at me going, come on, we'll go up and see my wife. And I'm going, you had your mind? I'm not going to another yeah, building. I'm not going to another <laughs> building. And especially, I mean, you know, I've got the Empire State Building right next to this. Yeah. You, know, what if, you know, what if they decide they want to hit the Empire State Building? So I go, I'll stay down here. You go up and you go see your wife. So he talked me into it and I did go up. So what we do is we got in the elevator. Elevator goes up whatever floor. Pick eight. When the doors to the elevator opened, it was a glass wall in front of us, and it was a completely unobstructed view of downtown Manhattan. And we walked out of the elevator, and his wife and the people in her office looked over and saw us. Now, my family knew, my ex-wife, my family, my sister, people that knew me knew I was in Manhattan and knew I had a meeting and knew I was flying. They had no idea I was in the World Trade Center that day. Wow. And then when I did get out, I was trying to make phone calls to call people and say, hey, listen, tell my sister, tell Gabrielle, whatever. I, I got out okay. And then the phone went dead. So now family and friends are hearing, hey, Bob just called and said he got out, but the phone went dead. So oh. that worked against me. In the meantime, Arthur's wife knew that he was in a meeting with Lehman Brothers in the towers. She's in her office with an unobstructed view when Tower 2 came down and couldn't get a hold of her husband for the next hour or so, Oof. whatever it was, whatever time it was. So when he walked in, of course, she's thinking the worst. My husband's in that building, and the building just collapsed. We walked in. And I've seen people faint, you know, from heat, heat stroke, heat exhaustion. When I was in the Marine Corps out in the desert, 29 Palms. But I've never seen somebody just faint. It's just, it's a, a very bizarre thought to me. She looked over and she looked at him and she just fell like a sack of potatoes. She just right down and just hit the ground and just out. Because she was so relieved that thinking he was down in the World Trade Center and the building just collapsed, and here he is. He walks in the door, and it was such a shock to her. She literally hit the ground and fainted. Um, and I, at that point, I started making landline phone calls. I called my ex-wife. I spoke to my son, and I just said, "Will, you know, the world has changed as you know it. You know, I think he was fourteen at the time, 
And I said, the world will never be the same for you growing up. You'll never, ever, you'll never forget where you were, and the world will never be the mm-hmm. same after this. And it's interesting because he did call me today, oh. and uh, we had a pretty interesting conversation about it. Um, so, yeah, we, we got out of there, and we tried to get to somebody that we knew or somebody that knew somebody had an apartment. They shut Manhattan down. Larry knows this. They shut the whole yeah. city down. Boom. You couldn't get in. You couldn't get out. You couldn't move. And somebody thought it'd be a good idea if we got one of their cars and tried to drive up to the 90s because somebody had an apartment. And as we were trying to drive up Park Avenue in gridlock because you couldn't go anywhere, we heard on 1010 Winds that they opened Grand Central Station. They opened up the metro uh, to New Haven. And so I, uh, I jumped out of the car and ran down Park Avenue and got over to Grand Central, got in, got on a train, and waited for the train to leave to take me to Connecticut. And then when I finally did get to Connecticut, um, my sister was waiting there, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Avenue. It was like the apocalypse. It was, it, there, there was nothing. It was just, just still quiet, which was very bizarre. And I got up to her place, and uh, I thought she was going to hug me. She was going to choke me. She was hugging me so hard. And she's crying and happy that I'm still alive. And uh, we got back to her house. I had a couple glasses of Jack Daniels and passed out. And then I woke up at who knows what time it was, very, very early in the morning. And I was in a fetal position, and I was crying. And I woke up crying with a picture of the man or the woman jumping off the building. And I thought, you got to be friggin' kidding me. And I, I was so unreal. I thought, this can't be. This can't be. I went downstairs and turned the news on to prove to myself that it wasn't real. And, of course, as soon as I turned the news on. So, yeah. So it all brought back that whole thing, seeing the engine, the wing, everything. That's just, I can't even imagine what it was like being there. No. No, you can't. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't. You know, and then we got the heroes like Larry and the fire department, all the guys who went in after I got out of there who tried to save lives. And, I mean, Larry's got his own stories, which, you know, will blow your sneakers off. So, And that's why he's here. That's why he's here. Thank God. Yes, thank God yeah. for that. So, Larry, tell us how 9-11 started for you that day. Um, well, first, I have hearing uh, Bob talk about his experience that day. Um, I know Bob. Bob uh, did some work for me. We met. Uh, remodeling of my house, and uh, we got to talking about York, Boston, where he's from. Uh, we talked about 9-11. He had told me that he was in the tower. Uh, we talked about it. We really didn't go into great detail about it. A lot of people that were there, it's like a little bond. I, I know you were there. And, yeah. You know, you understand. Just he- hearing this whole story like that just really, uh, you know, took me back a little bit. Um. I don't know really how to explain how I feel. Beating a little bit fast, just on the edge of my seat listening to it. But then I'm out of New York five years. Um, I swore like I'd never go back. I don't, I'm tied in New York City, everything, politics and all that like that. But then hearing you discuss, talk about um, how New Yorkers are and coming down the stairs and, you know, people help, you know. Makes you miss home. Makes you miss home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, New York, when when the shit hits the fan, people take care of each other. They do. They even you could walk down Fifth Avenue like lunchtime or rush hour, and everybody's going in one direction, other people going another. 
there's like unwritten rules, uh, etiquette, walking in the mm-hmm. street, and a lot of nobody's really talking to each other. It's quiet, but yet, if you stop somebody and ask them for directions, they'll give it to you quickly. Mm-hmm. And tell you it's over here, it's over there. Go down here. So, New Yorkers, that's just that breed of of people, and even the people we call them the Bridgeton ton of people. Yeah, the uh, the commuters that come into the path, just like that. <clears throat> um, I'm very grateful, and I am so happy that you're here and you made it through that. That's an, an amazing story. It hits me hard every time I hear him tell that story. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I think somebody had a another plan for me. Yeah, you're not done yet, Bob. No. no you're not done. No. So, Larry, what was it like on that day for you, being a, a New York police officer? Okay. Um, I was working nights. I was in a plainclothes unit, uh, the anti-crime unit, which was just disbanded. That's a whole story on its own. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> that morning, September 11th, I had a court appearance. So I stopped in the precinct. I signed in, got in the car, and <clears throat> just like Bob said with the weather, it was a beautiful day, unbelievable. And um, running in everybody... In the precinct, that was like the first thing out of everybody's out. You know, people usually hey, talk about the weather. But, I mean, it was an absolutely gorgeous day out. I get my car, I head down to court, and um, flip the radio on, and I hear that one of the, one of the towers got, uh, got hit by a plane. It was probably just right after the first one got hit. Now, like, I'm a little puzzled. I'm thinking, I know from history... A plane did crash into the Empire State Building, probably in the 50s, maybe. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, all right, it's a big building. You know, I'm not thinking jet airline or anything like that, maybe private plane or something. I'm like, okay. And then I'm hearing more stories, and I get down to the courthouse, which is uh, downtown Brooklyn, right by the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I'm not going to say a, uh, an unobstructed view, but you could probably get around and, and see the towers. I look up in the sky, and, and I see um, like a cloud of smoke going directly over Brooklyn and like Bob explained, it looked like doves and it was it was paper. It was coming across the river in a steady stream and just kept on going. And I see people coming out of the, the courthouse and, you know, looking for uh, like oh meet I'm like, oh this this isn't good. I uh, I find my partner and like I heard one of the towers just got hit. So we said we, we gotta get back to the priest and we gotta get out of here. So we got in our cars and drove down sidewalks, whatever, got back to the precinct. The uh, second building, I think, I saw it. I don't know if it was, um, if I saw it live on television when it came in or if it was a loop on the news. But I, I saw the second building get hit, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is not good. Um, you knew shit was hitting the fan, yeah. literally. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and um, I knew... My sister was at work. She was in uh, Long Island City, which was close by. I, I spoke to her on the landline. She was okay. I mean, she was upset. She was able to see the buildings from there, not them get hit, but she can. She knew what was going on. I didn't really have a time to get in touch with anybody else. We got ordered into uniform. Everybody's in uniform. There's no plane calls at this point. I mean, now it's all, all hands-on. We didn't know what was going on. We knew we were under attack, so they put us on posts, around the precinct to protect the precinct because, you know, we're the, the first line 
Mm-hmm. You know, us firemen, right, EMT, first line of defense. Yeah, for and help uh, yeah. And, and, and offense, defense, right. whatever. So uh, we're all standing outside in front of barricades. Um, you know the uh, neighborhood. I was working in Bushwick in Brooklyn in the uh, 83rd precinct. So a lot of the people were coming up to us. What's going on? We had a lot of people crowded around the precinct. It was a rough neighborhood back then. A lot of people didn't like the police, but now uh, <laughs> we were kind of like joined together. I'll get into that in a, in a minute. Mm-hmm. But as we're, we're standing out there, what do we do? Where do we go? You feel kind of helpless. You hear we're so close to it. And you want to rush there, but I don't even know how to explain it. All our phones were dead. I had my cell phone in my pocket. And I just tell the story. Um, my phone starts ringing. And, uh, you know, people are looking at me. And I pull my phone out of my pocket. I answered. It was my mother. She's in Florida. And she's like, Larry? I said, yeah, it's me. I said, how, the phones aren't working. How did, you, how, did, how, did, how did you just get through to me? I don't understand this. And, you know, she, she said, that's because I'm your mother. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Power of mom. So uh, <laughs> I, I let her know I was okay. And, um, you know, uh, she said she spoke to my sister and everything like that. Um, any of our other relatives were nowhere near there. So... We had work to do at this point. So I got off the phone with her, and um, <clears throat> a little later in the day, we um, got mobilized. We got sent down to uh, right back where I was by the courthouses, by the federal building. And I would say about 8 o'clock, we're all, we're all standing outside there. You could still see the smoke coming over. All the, uh, what a mess. We got on the van, and we went down to the site. It wasn't really crawled. Crown zero at that point. Right. Mm. You know, so we, we come over the bridge and we're watching. I'm seeing all the smoke come up. I'm like, oh my God. You know, just like, where was it? Eight cops in a van and we're all like quiet. Don't know what to say. We uh, get close. <clears throat> we're walking down, I think it was church. And then once we turn the corner and we're at ground zero, it was almost like, like a theater. It was like, it was huge. And I was like, holy shit. Buildings are leveled. Um, some of the buildings mm-hmm. look like um, somebody bit a chunk out of the side of it. There's smoke all over the place. Um, it was very hazy. Um, I heard um, like a, a faint beeping, keeping going in the background. And I found out just maybe a, a couple of years ago that um, what I heard I think it was like a beacon from firefighters. Firefighters. If you're, if you're in a fire too long, yeah. I'm not a firefighter. I, I don't, but isn't that I'm, crazy, no. though, that even just a few years ago you found that out? Yeah, and hearing that and now knowing you know, it was all clo- close by. So we, we walked through a little bit, and there was a military presence. There was a lot of cops, a lot of first responders, and it, it was like nobody was talking. It was just like everybody was... Mm. Stunned. Stunned. Yeah. yeah. Setting up temporary headquarters or, or whatever. And uh, we turned around, we got in the van, and, and you know, we went back. Um, from there on, I don't know, we didn't go home f- for days. Um, we went back and forth to, uh, to Ground Zero. Um, we're doing, I guess, we're not rescue at that point, just clean up. I recovery. Mean, recovery yeah. at that point. I don't even know what you're looking for. Doing the bucket brigade. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but watching everybody just come together was uh, it was something else. I would come out of the precinct and uh, people were cheering, you know, uh, hugging us and wow, humanity was at its best. Yeah, yeah. In the worst of times, that's when humanity comes out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, when we get into Manhattan, um, there's people holding up pictures and you know, please find this person and uh, yep. despair and sadness, grief, I, you know, so many feelings going through. And it's like, you know, what, what, what can we do? What can I do? I'm just one person. We're, you know, everybody's yeah. Yeah. with that thought. And, yeah. you know, we're getting looked at as, as heroes and we're not heroes, Bob the hero, anybody in that building was a hero. You know, a lot of lives were lost. You know, people talk about, you know, uh, the firefighters, the cops, and Port Authority, people that died. You know, there was a lot of uh, people that just got up and went to work that day that didn't come home. Right. Right. And there were a lot of people that are still dying. Right. Yep. Now, today. Yeah. Yeah, but, consistently. Yeah, getting down to, to the pile, as we called it, um, we were there all night. I was, you know, sleeping on the sides. I was down by the um, by the former police officer memorial, taking naps over there. I remember uh, just um, everybody coming in with food. I remember uh, an Uncle Ben's truck came down. It was yeah, it was Uncle Ben's. It was like um, a tractor trailer, and it parked, and then the sides opened up, and it was a full kitchen in there. Really, and they were just feeding anybody. That, that needed food, and there was um, civilians coming through. We're on there passing buckets, going through, sifting things, and when they found remains, you know, everybody got quiet, hand over your heart, and I'm not sure if I remember if they, I wasn't close enough to see it, but I think they might have had a flag and brought the parts out or, or whatever, brought it away from the scene. Then we got right back to work. Um, people were coming up to us with food. Some, some woman came up with a sort of big tray of cookies, and I, I, didn't, I wouldn't want to eat. And I was in good shape at the time. I wasn't eating cookies. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a note on it. It was from like a, um, like a kindergarten class. It was, oh. you know, from the kids. So, you know, we all wow. took a cookie and got back to work. The uh, canine dogs were coming through. And, mm. you know, you would just want to come over and give that dog a hug, but they're working. You can't throw off a scent or right. anything like that. So, yeah, that that was tough. We um, we walked through some of the buildings that were like half collapsed, and you can see, like Bob said, because like um, people just up and left. It was a apocalypse, or whatever, whatever, however you want to describe it. There's broken coffee mugs all over the place. There's um, newspapers. There's um, um, briefcases, computers, things knocked down, and it looked like like a fucking like a bomb went off. And I have some pictures. I didn't take a lot of pictures. And like the first day or two, I didn't want to take any pictures. But then I brought you know, my disposable camera because there were no iPhones back then. Right. I brought with me. I, I snapped some pictures because that's pe- history. People need to see this yeah. later. Yeah. People need to see. People need to know firsthand what happened, um, what it looked like, what was going on down there. Um, you know, you read in, in school about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was just, to me, and you know, when I was in school in the 80s and 70s, it was Pearl Harbor. 
but you really didn't have um, an attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And this this was an attachment to it, and uh, there weren't a lot of cameras, there weren't video or anything. I mean, you see some, like, old reels and stuff. But it was important, I thought, to take pictures at that point. I mean, not this tasteful, just of... Oh yeah, of the the site itself. I have a couple. Yeah. Um, when we were digging through things, I found a little packet of um, postcards, and uh, it still had the um, paper wrapper around it, like the band. And it was um, the Empire State Building. It was I guess it was a picture taken from the observatory deck on top of a uh, World Trade Center. Wow. It was a nighttime picture, and it was all it was filtered, mm-hmm. there's dirt all over and everything. So I took it, and I have one framed. I have it. In uh, in my living room, and it still smells like it. You can wow. oh yeah, you can smell it on there. So um, that's you know my reminder of what what happened down there. But getting back to everything we saw, the um, my big memory of it is the humanity, um, how people treated us, how people treated mm-hmm. each other. It was like. You know, good guys and bad guys hugging each other. It was just like everything, beefs, everything was put to the side, and everybody had a connection somehow to somebody down there. Even like throughout the, throughout the world, somebody knows somebody mm-hmm. that had a connection to it, and it was it was a it's a big event. Well, even watching it on TV, like in my newsroom when we were watching it happen, it it's something that even if we didn't know anybody that day, it still affected us because we saw a murder being committed. Yeah. And that trauma stays with you. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, you know, I was in, in work mode at that point. Everybody was. And it probably didn't catch up to me until March the following year. I started getting anxiety attacks. Mm. And it, it was crippling. It was tough. And I kept quiet about it. I went to work every day and work suffered, like, you know, family life suffered, everything suffered. You, you know, you really didn't know what was going on. It took me a couple of years to get through it and uh, to understand it. Mm. And I, I feel feel good now. Um, but it's still traumatic. It's and still it, traumatic. The, the PTS surfaces once in a while, I'm sure, just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I met with a therapist and kind of figured things out on my own. A lot of figuring out to do. This still is. Um, it's sad to say it, it can happen again. Yeah, with, absolutely. Especially yeah. with all this bullshit that's going on now, exactly. with the politics and everything like that. You know, the left fighting the right, and yep. the right fighting the left, and everything. For what? We get caught with our pants down. Yeah. And I was I was saying before I went went off track. Um, I don't, I don't even know where <laughs> where I left off at. Um, well, I was saying with with the humanity, just a lot of biz- all the businesses were shut down. There was one restaurant called Nino's. It was on Church. It was on Church, and they they stayed open. All the volunteers were there. It was open twenty four seven, and there was something to eat if you wanted to go there. If you wanted to sit, have a cup of coffee. You just wanted to sit and get away from it, and um, all volunteers. It was, it was nice, nice to see, and I just hope we don't go through something like that again. I oh. hope not. Oh. But but I do want to ask you a question. What was the worst thing you saw there at Ground Zero? Because people have forgotten the severity of this incident. Correct. 
And that's what really pisses me off is people have forgotten about this. So I want people to understand just how severe this is for, I mean, granted, you are a first responder. Granted, this is, you signed up to protect and to serve and to help others, but nobody, I don't care if you're wearing a badge or not, you shouldn't have to see something like this. So as a human being, being down there, what is the worst thing you saw? Well, you just kind of helped me when I went off track and didn't remember where I was going. Well, the the worst thing that I saw is just destruction. I saw um, fire engines that were flattened, flattened, cars that were flattened upside down. Everything was demolished, devastated, thinking, how are we going to clean this up? Mm. Well, you know what? We did. Yeah. We cleaned it up. I mean, we need to clean up a lot of things and people are hurting. But um, I was talking about taking pictures and everything like that. I think the younger generation now, they they know what 9-11 is in a book and on TV, but they don't know what it is. Um, this whole defunding the police and now we're, we're the enemy again. I don't think they don't understand what New York City was in the 80s and the 70s when right. things were fucked up. Really I bad. Mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it was scary. It, yep. it was filthy. It was a mess. Yep. For the past 15, 20 years, New York City, and even just like Chicago, all these other cities that are having problems, they're all a mess again. They don't understand um, growing up how New York City was nice and what it's going to turn into again. They're forgetting what happened that day. and well, They don't know. They're just, no. just, no. These kids are and, too young, and no. it could lead up to... But that's their parents should be telling them this, because this is a part of our history. And when I was back there in January of 2018 and went to the, the, the grounds where it happened by the Tower Pool, I saw something that really angered me. I mean, I had a powerful experience at that Tower Pool connecting with five people who perished that day. That was not what I was expecting to happen. That was not what I wanted to happen, but it did. It put me front and center, and I saw things that most people would never fathom. One of the people I saw was on fire. Now, this is January of 2018. You're talking 17 years later, you know, or 16 Mm. and a half years later. As my New York friend Andy and I were standing there, we saw, and, and I don't mean, to, this is going to sound racist, but I just have to say it because there were five Asian girls who were standing in front of the tower pole, giggling and laughing and taking their pictures in front of this. This is a graveyard. They this, don't get it. They that, don't get it. No, they and don't. That, we, that's my point. Yeah, exactly, they don't get it. it. They treat it like it's just a tourist attraction. This is a graveyard. Or just something that happened. Yes. You know, yeah. The yeah. severity of because everything's yeah. all cleaned up. There's yeah. a new building up, um, yeah. the, um, the path, everything's all, all put back, back together. Now there's uh, memorials, which um, my heart is broken. Um, I belong to a group of retired police officers, NYPD, the Arizona 1013. I'm the vice president of the group. And every year that I've been here, we get invited down to the Tempe Healing Fields, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. If you've ever been to yeah. All Flags. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, it's, it's amazing. And they invite us to the ceremony, and we wear our uniforms, and um, mine still fits. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bob's well, Marine uniform fits him, too. 
Oh, yeah, he sco- Bob squared away. Yeah, wow. Wow. <laughs> I left mine in the closet too long, and that, that's the thing. The closets make you clothes shrink. They, they, that's think, exactly right. right. Yeah, so that's I need it, you to yeah. come over and help me yeah. fix that. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. at the Hillfields, they're very nice to us, and uh, they let us read some of the names off of of the fallen, and then it didn't happen this year. Everything is virtual, so it's like it's okay to protest. Or whatever they want to call it, but it is bullshit, Bob. You can say that. Why can't why can't we go? Why can't people do this? Because this is all the families have. This is all of the the you know the first responders, their brothers in arms, sisters in arms. This is all they have. There's nothing left. They have to have something. And even you know, Bob and I had this thing on Facebook. We talked about it the other day. The lights. They had to argue and fight to get the lights turned back on. Down at Ground Zero, because the company said they were afraid that all the workers were going to get COVID. It's the like, freaking light bulb. Exactly. Light they're, bulbs. they're light bulbs. Just turn the damn things on and give this family something. Because the families usually go down there and read all the names, too. But yeah. this year, it's going to be recorded. They're not allowed to go down yeah. there and read the names. It's recorded. And after I had my experiences down at the Tower Pool at Ground Zero, I started watching... You know, I watched it in 2019 and I sat through the whole entire thing until I heard the names of the people I connected with. And I know that might sound morbid to some people, but the gravity, Mm. the gravity of me not even knowing somebody and then being able to see what they went through that day. I can't even fathom being in the building, much less like you were saying, Bob, people having to stand to the windowsill and just jump out two choices burn to death or jump to death and that's a horrible choice to have to make but the way you 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 explained it it was almost like they were at peace the way they just yeah stepped off yeah they they were accepting the fate or i can't imagine a thousand degrees of heat pushing you to there and that that's that's your thought i mean no you were a cop for Years. I was a Marine for years. I've been through we things that the general public should never see or understand. But when you see somebody who's got two choices in life and one is burn to death or jump to death. Yeah. And you think, what, what, what would my decision be I, if I were up there? I, wow. Yeah. I think this is like the first time you two have actually talked in depth about this, isn't it? Yeah, we've never we've never – we chatted just a little bit about yeah. being in New York and all, but we've never done this. So the other thing, so interesting. So eight months later, and I'll just say eight months because I don't remember exactly, but it was several months later. <clears throat> I get a phone call. I'm sitting at my desk, and caller ID was still fairly new, but I had a a, a phone that had caller ID in it. So I rings and I see NYPD. No. WTCPD, World Trade Center Police Department. And I'm looking at my phone and I'm thinking, there is no World Trade Center. So I answer the phone. I go, this is Bob Jenkins. And he says, uh, Mr. Jenkins, my name is Officer So-and-so from the New York City Police Department. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Jenkins, were you in the building on 9-11? I was. Uh, sir, we believe that we have found your identification and... Um, um, your identification to your to your computer. And remember earlier I said I didn't go back in the conference room. Mm-hmm. I left it there. And so 
it turns out that forensically, and you can't even try and wrap your head. Ask somebody how big the universe is. Well, it's pretty big. Ask somebody, how do you go through 110 stories of rubble and find a three, whatever the size, you know, an identification card, the thing that you would put on your travel luggage. And so I said to him, are you kidding me, sir? And he said, no. He said, we found your identification card. And I went, okay, so what are you going to do with it? He said, well, what do you want to do with it? It's yours. Uh, And I said, I said, this is a piece of history. Send it to me. He goes, okay. I said, what do most people do? He said, well, we have people cry. We have people say, keep it. And we have people like you that say, send it to me. And I said, oh, no, no, this is a piece of history. You know, I want you to send it to me. So a week later, whatever the heck it was, but it was fairly quickly. um, And Larry, you'll know this better than anybody in the world. But I got a manila envelope and I opened up the manila envelope. And inside was a New York City forensics bag. And it said NYPD, and it had all these numbers on it, and had the date, fish kills, um, and it was sealed like a forensic bag should be, and it had my identification card. And all I could think was, how could they possibly have found that in all of that debris? Well, they had a couple of morgues set up um, out in Staten Island. I know cops that were there. 24-7 24-7 was a big operation. They were sifting through everything. everything. Every bucket that we pulled out of there was sifted through. They found, not found, they recovered um, body remains, parts, body yeah. parts. Um, watches, jewelry. Watches, jewelry. Rings. I remember the, um, it was on the front page. It was uh, Moira Smith. She was a police officer in the 13th Precinct of uh, her leading a man out. And uh, she was one of the missing. And I remember seeing the picture on the news and you were able to read her name and then she was one of the missing and they found, I think they found her shield. They oh. found her shield, the whole thing with her name plate and everything. I have a picture of it somewhere. It was, but they found, they recovered that. How, and even your ID card, how do they recover that? How? How? Hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Hard, tireless. <clears throat> hard work. Yeah. Yep. How many days did you work at Ground Zero, Larry? Do you remember? Um, roundabout. Roundabout total. I don't know. We were down there for a couple of months, and we would go down there for a couple of days at a pop on on orders. Just um, either to, um, we needed the security down there. Um, we went down on our own. Also, we did the, the bucket brigade. We did um, recovery, cleanup. I couldn't even tell you how many days we were down there. And then you had all the funerals to go to. I didn't go. I went to a couple. There was just like it was like one every day between the fire department. They lost mm-hmm. 30, 343 souls there. It was just like every day there was something. And yeah, yeah. And you know this crazy girl from Arizona went there last year, and the weekend before September eleventh, and met with someone who worked at Ten House. The only existing firefighter still on duty from 9-11. Really? Mm. And mm. delivering that message to him was phenomenal because 
A crazy girl from Arizona shows up in New York to the firehouse that's kitty corner to the towers where they lost a number of men. And one of their rookie firefighters connects with me, of all things. And I'll never forget it because I thought I was delivering just one message because of what I was shown. Mm -hmm. And two days prior to my trip to New York, this part's not in the book. The part about connecting with him is. But when I went to New York two days before I left on my way to work here, that fireman connected with me and gave me so much to tell. And when I went back and I just walked up and I, I asked the firefighter that was there, because the, the two young firefighters, you know, they were too young. Mm-hmm. And I walked up and I had my buddy Andy. He's a New Yorker. So he was with me when I went through these experiences. So he saw it firsthand. And I would have thought I was crazy if I didn't have somebody witnessing what was going on. And when we walked into that firehouse and sat there and talked to Sal, you know, I'm looking at a hero. I'm looking at what you guys go through on a daily basis, running into fires, running into situations that are just unknown, risking your own life for, for somebody else, the bravery. And I'm sitting here in this office looking at him, and he was one of those guys that ran into the fires, that ran into seeing his, you know, his firehouse depleted of all these men and seeing all these firefighters die and looking out their window and their firehouse got partially destroyed because of the plane hitting and their building getting destroyed. But sitting across from him last year, I was like afraid to tell him what I had to share. Mm. But when I shared everything with him, the look of relief I saw in his face and that heaviness that he had carried for so long on his shoulders, his shoulders just went down and you could see the tears in his eyes. And it was one of the most beautiful experiences for me to have somebody show me that kind of grace Mm -hmm. that they let me do that. And that's something that changed me forever because even though, I saw things, I heard things, I witnessed it in some ways like everyone else. I wasn't there like you guys were, but it hit me very hard and I've carried it for so long. And then to go there, because I was like everyone else, I wanted to be a first responder. I wanted to go down there and help when it happened. But what was I going to do? I wasn't trained to do that. The only thing I knew was I knew all about death. I had so much experience with death Mm -hmm. that I thought I could go to New York and help in 2001, but I got talked out of it, of course. Well, even as a first responder, showing up down there, we're we're trained. You're not trained for that. No, No. you're not. It's like, what the hell do I do? What can I do to help? What can I do when people are coming up to us? They they want to help. Everybody wants help. That's, That's human. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you guys, I tell you, I'm grateful that you're here sharing these things with us. You know, something that I, 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 I talk about post-traumatic um, things that, you know, that pop up that you you can't, you don't even know happened. It would should, you know, a year later, a year later, my older sister um, had rented a, uh, a villa in Tuscany for several months 
and my mom was still alive, and so she invited everybody, all these different packets of people, to go to Tuscany for a week vacation. And um, they kind of did it to me the week during 9-11 because they wanted to get me out of the U.S., over in Italy, and away from it so I wasn't reminded of the whole event. So we got to Italy had a great time. Food, I mean, everything you hear, all the cliches about Italy are are couldn't be better. We're drinking wine, Italy eating. Is I mean, it's just incredible. So one night they all went to bed, and one night it was nine eleven, a year later. And I was watching the news and the rest of my family, everybody had gone to bed, and I'm watching the news, and um they were showing the documentaries. And one of them is there were two French brothers that came in and did a documentary specifically about the New York City Fire Department. It was on HBO. Firefighter Tony. With Father Michael Michael Judge was in it. And so, yes, exactly. So they did the documentary, and they were at Engine 11, and they showed them going in, and they went into um, Tower 1. And as they got in the lobby, um, you could see the elevator banks, everything. Everywhere I stood that morning, I was looking around going, yeah, that's right where we were. And then I saw the two escalators going up to the mezzanine level, and that's exactly the door I came out of when I came down. I came down the mezzanine and walked out. They went up those escalators and walked through that, uh, that, that walkway. And so there they are with their cameras, and they're walking through, and you're hearing. Oh. Bodies. Bodies. If you had asked me prior to that, did I hear anything? I To this day, I'd still go, I don't know what you're talking about. Because you were, you were concentrating on getting out. But when I heard it that night... I went, holy shit, those are bodies hitting the roof. But I had no idea that's what was I was hearing. There was so much going on at the time, I had no idea. And I broke down like a baby and started crying hearing the bodies. It just, it just it brought out mm. that memory and brought me right back to that moment. I freaked out. They even was, have footage of the second plane hitting. They do. Live. And they see the camera going, what is that? And boom, it hit. Another so we'll show very, that to the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, another b- very bizarre thing that happened to me was when I when I finally got back home to Boston. I lived in North in a town called Beverly, and on the way home, driving, I had actually had the forethought when I was in New York to call a rental car company and get a rental car to get home. And so I'm driving up to Boston, and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, "You should call the uh, the local newspaper." So I called the Boston Globe, and I said, hey, listen, you guys might be interested in this story. Next thing you know, they're freaking out. You know, we got a local boy who was in the building. So it's in the Boston Globe, and then every other newspaper, everybody in Boston wanted to come over to my house to interview me about this thing. Okay, so that all happens. And then I start getting the phone calls. But the one phone call I will never, ever forget. I pick up the phone, and... It's quiet, and I hear this little, not squeaky, this little quiet voice, and she goes, you were there. And I go, yes, ma'am. She goes, did you see my friend? 
Oh. And I, I, I didn't even know what to say. I knew exactly what she was talking about. She goes, but you were there. You must have seen my friend. My friend was there. Did you see her? And I said, no, ma'am, I didn't. And she said, well, you had to if you were down there. She was there. And she, she couldn't cope with the reality right. of having lost somebody. And I couldn't do anything other than just, I'm sorry, I didn't psych, I didn't. And she hung, she started crying, and then she just hung up the phone. Wow. That blew my sneakers off. Haunting. Haunting. Yeah. Did you see my friend? Wow. So many families never got that opportunity to have their loved one back, you know? No, and no. Like I said in the beginning, it's brutal, but it's the truth that these families kept getting body parts for many years because they would find bones and things scattered all across the area. You know, one message I try to get through to everybody, and I did it last year when I spoke, and I really do. I ask everybody when I go through this conversation, I say, have you ever been on an airplane? And people chuckle. They're like, of course I have. And I said, well, then you were there that day. Have you ever been in New York City? Have you ever traveled? Have you ever done anything? They go, yeah. I said, well, then you were there. That's you just saying. weren't Everybody there. Everybody can relate to it. You just weren't there that day. But you have been on an airplane. You have been in New York. You've traveled. You've done these things. So people say, oh, Bob, I'm so glad. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. And I go, no, it's not me. It was all of us. You just happened to not be there that day. You could have just as easily been on an airplane that day. You could have just as easily been in New York. If you've ever traveled, you, it, you, it was you. It wasn't me. Don't feel sorry for me. They tried to kill all of us. It's just the people who happened to be there that day. But had we not been there and happened the next day, you could have been there. They'll kind of look at me like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, they tried to kill everybody. It was, it was don't feel sorry for Bob Jenkins. You know, feel sorry for yourself. Feel sorry that somebody tried to kill all of us. Well, they tried to kill the American spirit, too, which really sucks because... Nine twelve oh one. we all were there for one another. Yeah, yeah. We patted, like you said, we patted yeah. officers on the back. First responders were our best friends. Yeah. And it didn't matter what sex you were, what color you were, no. what background no. you came from. No. It didn't matter. We were just human beings. No. Yeah. And, you know, my one of my favorite movies is Independence Day. Right. And at the precipice of that time, they all came together. And the president was a pilot, so he jumped back in the cockpit mm. and flew and everybody, even a crop pilot, got in there and yeah. saved the world. The yeah. last guy you would never think saved the world. And that's, I always look back on that, like our 9-11, 9-12-01, one when we all came together and said, we don't give a shit about yeah, yeah. anything. This oh. is who we are. We all come together. Oh. And I felt really bad when the Diamondbacks beat oh, <laughs> New York yeah. in the playoffs. Uh, I did uh, feel bad. I did feel bad. But that was, I think, one of our only championships we ever won. And we were a new team here in Arizona. And it was like, wait a minute. Isn't New York supposed to win this yeah, year? Yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of hard, you yeah. know, seeing that. But uh, so have either one of you ever been back to that place, Ground Zero, since then? Um, yes, but... Uh, by accident. By accident? Yeah. Okay, you might have to explain that one, Larry. Police headquarters is uh, very close. There were a number of police officers that were in line, ready to retire that day. A couple of them that, that perished there that dropped their papers and ran ran to the site. So it's that close, but there's tall buildings all around. So 
um, after the fact, you you know, you, the new building wasn't up yet. So I was down at headquarters mm-hmm. doing something, and I had some some time. So I just went for a walk, and I really had no desire to go down to Ground Zero, and I stumbled across it. I walked in, and was like, "Holy shit, here I am!" Wow. The, the memorial was there, and I spoke to a, a cop, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to go in to the museum the m- memorial. I still haven't been there yet, and um, I was like. Yeah, sure. The first responders, you know, they let us go ahead of the line, or I guess our own separate line. And as I was walking through, he uh, he asked me if I had a weapon on me, and I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm working." You're a cop, of course. And he's like, "Well, I we can't let you in with it." And I thought he was kidding. I was like, "We can't let me in with it." They said, no, I'm um, not allowed to have a, any weapons in there, not even police officers, you know, the commission is worried about um, what, like suicide, being upset, or, or whatever the case is. I was like, well, I'm going to give him my gun. What about, you know, the 80-foot jump into the, into the pool? <laughs> into the pool. Right. Like, that's not going to hurt me? <laughs> right. Or anything like that. And I was like, um, it was okay for me to have my gun on me when we're down there for recovery. But now, I was like, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. And I never went back. What about you, Bob? I did. I was, um, um, I, I got, when I was up in, in Boston, um, I got interviewed, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. I got interviewed for something, and it, someone caught wind, and they asked me if, if I would go down for the, um, I hate to use the word anniversary, but the 10th year anniversary. And uh, so they flew me down, and I met one of the reporters, and they did this thing with me, and um while I was there, I called a friend of mine, um, and uh, and and her husband answered the phone, and he said, "Look, you know, I'm 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 right here in Brooklyn. I'll jump on the subway. I'll come over and I'll meet you." And uh, he said, "Remember my brother Tommy from the wedding?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, he works for the mayor." And I said, "Kevin, a lot of people work for the mayor." He said, "No, no, he works for the mayor." And uh, so, sure enough, Kevin came and met me. And next thing you know, Tommy met us at the perimeter. And as we were walking through, the cops were looking at him going, hi, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. So they knew him by name. Hmm. And we got closer and closer and closer. And the closer we got to ground zero, the more strict the um, uh, security was. But it was very interesting. When we got within about a block, security was very tight. A lot of police but we walked up to a table with some officials, and they had a little box of pink, um, like a, a wrapped, I don't even know what to call it, like a, like a piece of string, if you will. And it was probably the most unsecure, secure thing in the world because nobody could ever make one and come up with one of these things in time to forge it to get somebody in there that didn't belong. So actually, it was genius what they did. But they handed us one of these and we put it on, and then we walked right down to ground zero. I mean, right down to um, the the waterfalls, which really took me back. Because when I stood at the waterfall, I realized exactly. I walked around it, and then I realized You know where you were standing. Yeah, that's exactly it. I literally came back out the waterfall about 40, 50 feet and looked at it and looked up and went, this is where I was standing, and that's where that man and that woman hit the ground right about there. It's another holy shit moment. And that was a big holy shit moment. Wow. And I was not real comfortable. I, 
it was not I I didn't like it. Wow. I think what they've done <sighs> is beautiful. I didn't go to the museum. Uh, I've been asked by people if I would donate my uh, the, the 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 piece that they found my ID card if I would donate to the museum. And at first I was like, yeah, I'll give that some thought. And I thought, no, I'm going to keep that in my family. That's just way too much history. Yeah, it's the, too much. The yeah. fact that you got out, that building collapsed, and they found that after they, the fact. That's just unreal. Unreal. Yeah. You know, I'm really grateful that you both came in to do this. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. This is this is what, you know— you said it earlier, you know, they're, they're trying to shut the lights down. They're not doing this. People aren't allowed to do this. They're, they're, they're trying to forget about it. Yeah. And that's bullshit. That is just bullshit. It's part of our history. You know, we're not patting each other on the back about this. I, I'm, no, it was tragedy that brought us all together. It right. was something severe. And right. I even took a road trip a couple weeks ago to Winslow because I know they have a couple pieces of the tower there. And everyone's like, oh, you're going up there to see the statues of the eagles. I'm like, no, you don't get it. I said, first of all, it's a road trip. Second of all, I am deliberately going there to see these pieces of the tower. I said, you don't understand. There's there's a special meaning mm. for me. Mm. And I stood there and touched those two pieces and started to cry. I stood there for like 15 minutes just crying. Yeah. And I saw a couple groups of people pull up and did the exact same thing. And they were really? they were not young they were probably in their 30s, so they, yeah. they were around when 9-11 happened, but there was a, a group of four people in an SUV, Americans, obviously. They jumped out. They stood in front of those two pieces of the towers and took pictures and smiled, and I was so disgusted. Again, I mean, I was shocked to see that because the, they just got right out, read the plaque real quick, took the pictures, smiled, laughed, jumped back in the car. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with people? Again, no. this goes back to even though I was not in New York that day, yeah. it affected me. So I can't understand or even fathom how anybody cannot be affected by it. And just to treat this type of thing like it's a tourist attraction just sickens yeah. me. It really yeah. sickens me. And to have you two here with me right now, I'm extremely honored and humbled to, have, to be in your presence because yeah, I'm, that's hard I'm, to fathom. I'm, that's like going to Hawaii and pissing on the Arizona gravesite. Mm. I mean, that's literally yeah. pissing well, on a gravesite. These grave people site. that, that are taking these selfies and, and smiling them, they're going to show these pictures to somebody. And hopefully that's somebody that they show that picture to. Like, really? You're taking a selfie, smiling in front of this? Yeah. yeah. Why? Yeah. It, it was, gets straightened out by somebody else just showing the picture of them. It's sick. And when I was in New York. It's and, totally disrespectful. Right. Just, and when I was at Ground Zero in 2018 in January, the security guard, we spent about a half an hour talking to the security guard. He said it's a daily occurrence and it happens all day, every day that people are there. He sees this happening. Now, I can understand taking a picture as I have. I've taken a picture of the memorials every time I visit one because there, there's over 70 cities in the United States that got pieces of things from the Twin Towers in New York. I didn't even realize that we had that many memorials across the state. Arizona has, I believe, three or four. I had no idea. Well, I was pissed off because I had to go up to Winslow to see a piece of the towers. And then I came home and I started There's doing one in Gilbert, I think. There's Gilbert, yeah. I believe Chandler, and Phoenix. 
But I didn't even know there's at least 70 cities across America that have gotten pieces of the towers and have done their own memorials. And that's something that, you know, I had to go online to look for because coming Mm -hmm. on this show, doing my research, Mm -hmm. I was going to say that it's disgusting that I have to drive three hours away to go see something. Right. But then I got educated because I saw how many cities across America. And I know this is going to sound weird, but you know, I have a Mustang, Bob. It's just like yours, Hmm. convertible. I love touring around. So I'm going to go on that website and I'm going to hit as many as, as many of those sites as I can just to see what's out there. And I think the next time if I pull up in front of one and someone grabs their camera and tries to smile and giggle, I'm just going to say, what the fuck is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Because we can't forget. We can't forget. 2001 was a hard year for me. My husband died in February 2001 of cancer. And then right there in September, everyone's world changed again. So I'm grateful that you guys... Mm-hmm. Tell your stories. Yeah. And I am so privileged to have you here today. So thank you both. Yeah. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. You know, our scars have the power to remind us that our past is real. For many, the scars in 9 11 run deep. So many affected that day, and so many who continue to feel the painful memories of loss and devastation. Those who have gone on to rebuild their lives without those they miss so dearly. Those who continue to fight for their survival after being in the middle of the hell and destruction. In the days that followed, we all came together and humanity was at its best. Our world is in chaos today, but can we all for just one day stop and give remembrance to a time when we all came together and loved one another. 9-11 forever changed many of us. And I, for one, will never forget. And I hope you won't either. You know, guys, it may have happened 19 years ago, but it still feels like yesterday to many of us. Please give your first responders a hello and thank them for what they do. And if you know anyone that was affected by this day, Give them a call and tell them that you love them because life is just too damn short and you never know when it's going to end. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts known as The Collective each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.